Jason Swan was living the good life as a financial planner about 10 years ago. And then trauma turned his life upside down. He found healing in the Colorado Rockies and a new career on the front lines of environmental justice. You may have to do a job you don't want to do, but you're planting seeds that can eventually get you to the place that you want. I'm Yash Pavlik-Slank, and this is Degrees, real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. Today, I'll talk with Jason Swan about his work as a policy analyst at Western Resources Advocates in Colorado. The 36-year-old will tell us how he worked to pass the law that helps disadvantaged communities access the outdoors, and he'll explain how he manages to keep a modeling career going on the side. Welcome to Degrees, Jason. Well, gosh, the modeling career. It's so hilarious to even hear that. But yes, thank you for having me. Well, Jason, I don't think I've ever met a financial advisor who became an environmental activist. Why did you think that was the right career for you? Oh, you know, Colorado has a way of making you fall in love with it. And when you uh, venture into the Rocky Mountains or uh, have a chance to go and, and visit the national park, or even if you go to your local state parks and see the Sanitas, and the Flatirons in Boulder, uh, or go all the way down to the Sand Dunes National Park, you just fall in love with Colorado. And with that, I had a deep appreciation for adventuring when I got here. So even though I was a financial advisor, I spent a lot of my time in the outdoors exploring. And with that, you meet a lot of interesting people and you start learning, right? You want to learn about the places that you visit. And the more that you learn, the more that you hold a certain bond to it and the more that you want to protect it. And so that's sort of the route in which I I got there or just being in it. How are you able to pull this off? So many people in this field have studied environmental science and they've studied sustainability. Some have master's degrees. A lot of them have volunteer experience. You have a BA in business and clearly you have a passion How did you find your way in? Basically, I moved from a small shanty in the middle of a cow pasture in Sparta, Georgia, is where I grew up. And so my first connection with the land was actually um, just playing outside, climbing trees, jumping into rain-filled ditches of water, uh, and uh, breaking uh, bones uh, from climbing those trees, and just really spending a lot of time outdoors. But when you get older, uh, you really move away from it. And I got away from uh, uh, just being outdoors and, you know, got into corporate America. I moved to Nebraska to be closer to my twin brother. But, you know, there was an incident that happened to me that made me move to Colorado. Basically, I was wrongfully accused, beat up, thrown in jail uh, for something I didn't do. And uh, I had to fight the system for a little over a year uh, before charges were eventually reduced, but not dropped. And with that, I woke up to the disparities of the judicial system and I woke up to the disparities of policing in general and just realized that um, at that point, my color played a part into someone's judgment about who I was. And that never happened to me before. I never had a reason 
to distrust the system because the system had always benefited me one way or another. And I was upstanding citizen and paying my taxes and doing what I needed to do. And, and so um, after that happened to me, um, I, I decided to move away to Colorado. And when I did that, I found respite in the melodic powers of the outdoors. I could not believe how healing and therapeutic it was to just walk a trail, uh, to climb a mountain, to go through hardships, even in the outdoors and come out on the other, other end unscathed, hopefully, and with a new profound appreciation for living. I thought something that was so beneficial, beneficial to my mental health could certainly be beneficial to other people. So I started a company called Rising Routes, uh, and that really sparked my entry into uh, the outdoor industry. I get a message from uh, Western Resource Advocates asking that I should apply for this land policy analyst position. And I'm like, oh, this is everything that I've been asking for. So I said, okay, I have no experience (laughs) in this field. How do I get this job? I started calling all my friends who were either previously in policy or had done something similar. And I just took notes and like just learning how to really kill this interview, right? from someone who doesn't have experience that who but can still do this job. The main type of feedback I was getting back is that being an analyst is very technical. If you have a process and you know how to go down a path of just research, uh, you'll be fine. Um, uh, you know, what can't be taught. And then ultimately, my uh, now boss reached out to me and said, you know what, we can't give you the job, right? He actually... I did not get the job, he said, but, you know, we liked you enough that we would love to offer you a fellowship here for the next year. So I took the fellowship and it wasn't even within uh, six to eight months of my fellowship. I was offered a full time position as a land policy analyst. I think when people hear the term or the title policy analyst, they picture a really wonky job. Um, Is it a wonky job? What do you do exactly? No, it's not a wonky job. You know, uh, for those who think you need to have a PhD or a, you know an environmental science degree or or any of that, I, I say the hell with it. Right? <laughs> you can learn technical things. What you can't learn uh, and you can't really hide is your passion and, and and love and appreciation for what you're doing. People can see authenticity, and so it's important to to embody all of that. As far as my job is concerned, I know that is a very hard space to get into. I've heard multiple people talk about how difficult it is to enter into policy, uh, specifically in environmentalism. Half of this job, if not 90% of it, is about relationships. It's about forming good political relationships. It's about taking time to listen to the naysayers, bringing them in the conversation, making them a part of the decision-making process, right? And what I do specifically is I focus on equitable access to the outdoors and access to decision-making. And I do that for racially and ethically diverse individuals. I do that for uh, low-income individuals. I do that for LGBTQ+. I do that for um, the the disabled. It, it, It doesn't matter for white rural areas uh, and as well as urban. Uh, Access is encompassing of all. I created or at least helped provide policy recommendations for the first of its kind uh, outdoor equity grant program here in Colorado. 
Let's dig into that deeper in just a moment. I want to go back to the two hats that you wear. Um, you identified that the analyst hat is something that you can study, you can become, you can practice uh, just by experience and learning. What makes a good analyst is one part of my question. And and that's really to address the listeners who are thinking about doing this themselves and wondering what kinds of skills they want they need to build to become a really good analyst and what to look for um, as far as uh, opportunities that they're uh, to make change in that role. And then I'd love for you to talk about the relationships side. And, uh, you know, you mentioned working with naysayers and giving them a voice and a chance to be heard and understanding where they're coming from. I'd love to hear any tips or tricks you have to bringing them along because listening is one piece, but persuading and uh, working with them, establishing those relationships is a totally different animal. So let's talk about analyst first and then transition over to relationships. What makes a good analyst? You know, relationship and analyst go hand in hand. So it, it, you almost have to talk about both of them uh, simultaneously um, to make a good analyst. Because the, I always look at the analyst as the bare bone. It's literally the, the foundational piece. It's the, it's the cement that you pour before you build anything else on top of it, right? And so uh, with that, you need, analysts should not be, one of the things actually concerned about analysts and about policy in general by being in this space for only a year and a half is the fact that I see that equity in itself is not incorporated often when you talk about land, water, air, climate, right? It's almost like, let's go directly into the policy and start focusing on the facts uh, without buy-in from the community. And why do you think that is historically? I guess I would say this: communities are not necessarily the first thing that people think of because they don't make people vote in legislators into office so that they can make the decisions on behalf of the people. And so we entrust them to be a voice for us. And so, you know, when you, when, when that's always been done, it's, it seems like the first thing that we do is uh, spend our time looking at, um, you know, for instance, land, water, and air, right. And I'll just stick with land, this 30 by 30 initiative, uh, that has gotten traction across the uh, the world is uh, for for a lot of organizations and for a lot of green groups is about protecting acres, right? And sometimes even grantees or grantors are only focused on acres. How can you protect more acres without consideration for the communities that it may help or it may not help? You know, you we all need to be thinking about who benefits the most and who benefits the least. Whenever we're creating policy recommendations, can you briefly explain what the thirty by thirty initiative is? Thirty by thirty initiative is a opportunity to protect thirty percent of our land and waters and air by twenty thirty. It's essentially a, a global initiative. There's uh, from the Biden's administration's uh, America the Beautiful report. Their hope is to allow local communities to really create the solutions. So local problems with local solutions. Um, the problem is, is that I don't necessarily see resources being, you know, extracted towards these communities so that they can do the work. And if it is resources, it's not enough to get the job done. 
And so that is a problem that I can see right now. And one of the reasons why you even see with the outdoor equity grant program, uh, we're trying to make a, a, a broader focus on smaller uh, organizations that are doing this uh, work on the ground. There's a shift, not only in Colorado, but there's a shift nationally as well. With the demographic is changing. There are more racially, ethically diverse people. And by 2050, we're seeing that there won't be a majority group, right? Primarily led by the Latinx community. And so, and also in Colorado, where the workforce, the labor force is actually changing uh, drastically as well, both in rural and and, and, uh, urban areas where uh, racially, ethically diverse individuals led by the Latinx community uh, will be almost 50% by 2050 as well. So with this initiative, with the lack of people accessing the outdoors, uh, as I talked to you uh, before, if we don't get children at a very young age engaged, specifically those who are racially, ethically diverse as well, or low income, we lose a chance for these individuals to, one, work in the workforce or have a passion uh, and desire to want to protect the land, water, and air. And that's a concern. And so the Outdoor Equity Grant Program uh, is an opportunity to do just that, is to uh, break down barriers to the financial costs to get into the outdoors, to ensure that the culture even is represented uh, of those individuals that are getting outdoors, that is not historically representative of, um, you know, uh, of white history as well. Yeah. Well, and I think part of that is is inspiring adults to inspire children who can be models for how you can turn this passion for the environment and these positive experiences, a young person into a career. Um, and part of being a role model, especially for uh communities with disadvantaged kids. Um, A lot of times that means, or sometimes that means being a person of color. I mean, the environmental sector is still mainly white. How do you navigate that as a black man? And how can this sector attract more black and brown talent to not only serve in the moment today, but also inspire the next generation? I know representation matters a lot. And if you don't see yourself or see someone else in positions that we are unlikely to be, then we're unlikely to do it. And so um, I think it's very important that black and brown folks uh, are represented um, in leadership positions, much like policy, uh, much like, you know, uh, skiing or uh, fly fishing or, uh, or, or any other sport that, you know, people traditionally think that we're not there, but we've been there. We've been doing it for a very long time. Now, whether that um, whether that has been heightened um, and our stories have been told, well, that's just coming to fruition uh, just as of recently. And that's just because of the you know killings of our sisters and brothers. And that has changed this shift or shift the, the conversation towards how are you as a company being socially responsible? Um, and how are you giving back and how are you ensuring that our communities are vibrant if we're giving you resources? And, you know, people are getting to a point now where they don't want to uh, give their money to organizations that are not giving back or are not socially responsible. And I, I, I applaud that and I hope that continues. But I just think uh, at the end of the day, it's up to our leaders who are predominantly white to start telling more stories 
and start uh, creating more opportunities for racially and ethically diverse people to, uh, to, to participate in these positions of leadership. And so, you know, I, I look at myself as a black man and I'm, you know, I always know I'm black. Um, do I allow it to hold me back from my dreams and my aspirations? Absolutely not. Um, there is no way in hell that I'm going to walk in any space uh, where there's the governor or there's somebody of power that I'm going to feel intimidated and I'm going to feel like I don't belong. I'm always going to feel like I belong. And I think that's uh, instilling that into our children and ensuring that they understand that just as much as we do is so vitally important. Because I was talking to um, someone and I said that one of the reasons why power is removed from people is convincing we don't have it. And part of stepping into collective power is recognizing that you have power, you have agency. And so we have to get back to that. And we need to be able to do these programs with the Outdoor Equity Grant Program is to ensure that that's happening when we're doing some of this, this, this education. Can you talk about a specific example, a time when or, or a time, a transitional time in your life where you really grew into owning that, that I'm not going to feel uncomfortable in any room. I, and the the connection, a recent connection I have to this, not exactly, but similar feeling is I was reflecting uh I was talking with a colleague who's turning 30 this week and I'm I'm 37. It's I'm 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 deep into my 30s and I he he said what was your what's your advice or can you talk about being turning 30 and I said well I give uh, I give fewer I just don't care as much what other people think about me and I I feel more emboldened to ask for what I want and I usually get it because I actually had the confidence to ask. So for me that time came in my 30s. Um, but tell me about when you decided to really own that, uh, that confidence to, to represent yourself and be fully yourself in every room you walk into. That's a great question. I, for many of us, I hope this doesn't happen more frequently. I hope we change the narrative in this regard, because sometimes trauma and, uh, you know, huge changes in our lives can create a shift in how we view ourselves and how we start walking confidently into our, uh, our agency. And I think for me personally, there was a series of events <laughs> that continued to play out. So in addition to nature helping me kind of rationalize or understand deeper about my own life, when you have a series of tragic events happen to you from one and I can start with the police incident in Nebraska to losing my wife, my ex-wife, which I never thought would happen. And, and that, you know, I, I always talk about her in a sense because I know how much she's provided for me and how much she made me the man I am today by letting me go. Right. And and so from losing that and then to losing a career, right, getting laid off from a job that you were actually pretty damn good at. And, you know, when they say things happen in threes, I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm over it. I'm going to, I'm done. I'm going to live the life that I know I can have. Uh, and I'm going to do everything possible to have it, you know? And so with that, you have to make sacrifices, right? You may have to make less money. You may have to live a less vibrant life. You may have to do a job you don't want to do, 
Uh, you, but you're planting seeds that can eventually get you to the place that you want. And with that, that's how I had the energy to, to want to live out the life I have right now. So you've got this blossoming advocacy career that has been rooted in some ways a reinvention or a return to self. And that's one part of Jason Swan. Another part of Jason Swan is as a professional model. And this seems like a very different whiplash type of uh, understanding of you. How is it? What's it like having a double life as an environmentalist and a model? I don't talk about that side too often. Uh, <laughs> because my friends give me about it all the time and I, I give it back to them. Um, because they're jealous. Because they're No, jealous. they're not jealous. They're just... <laughs> so jokes aside, modeling was one of those sacrifices, to be honest with you. It wasn't something that I just decided I wanted to do. It was more that somebody said, you should do it. Um, and I was like, okay, this was at the height of me transitioning from one job to the next. Without, I wasn't even, I didn't have a job. So I had to figure out what could I do to make extra money while I was trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And somebody told me I should take up modeling. And, and so I, I applied for Wilhelmina and a couple of other ones in Colorado um, and got called back from all of them. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know it was going to be that easy. And then, you know, went and interviewed and every single one of the agencies wanted me to work for them. And again, this, this is in 2020. So, you know, you don't know what people's agenda is, if it's performative or not, because again, DEI and things like that was the hot topic. And I was trying to my best not to be tokenized, but I needed some additional funds. And so I decided after talking to a couple of model friends that I know in the outdoor industry, um, that they told me to go with Wilhelmina and here I am. And um, I haven't done a lot of work with them, but you know, it goes back to what I was telling you before, representation matters. And um, if I can be a picture that a little boy or girl or they or them uh, sees on television that inspires them to do more rather or, or, or participate in, um, I think I've, I've done my job. And so it's not just for me. It's not just for the money that I make out of it, but it's literally being the representation that I hope that more children who look like me could inspire to to want to do a particular sport because my modeling usually involves uh, mostly uh, outdoor companies. You mentioned being skeptical of tokenism and being used as, but on the flip side, representation matters. How do you protect your image from being used in a way that doesn't genuinely advance representation? It's authenticity. I was telling you about that before. I'm an analyst, right? My job is to research. My job is to understand who this company is. And before I decide to make a choice, I'm going to have the facts and I'm going to ask the right questions and I'm going to get compensated appropriately for it. And so I think what a lot of people do is they, they see an opportunity and the first thing they think is like, oh, let me do it for free or, or let me, you know, I get to do this or I get some gear or whatever, whatever. I don't care about all this. I got all the gear I would ever need from any organization. I don't need your gear. I don't need to be the face of your organization. Uh, I have no interest, to be honest with you. I'm interested in what you do. And so um, I'm not going to spoil the spoil the. Uh, good news, but I am about to work with an organization um, that I feel 
perfectly aligns uh, with my values, uh, an outdoor organization out of Sweden um, that uh, has a lot of uh, stores here as well and a lot of presence here in the United States. And I think it perfectly aligns with with uh, who I am because I have yet to uh, become an ambassador for an organization. Um, and I think this is going to be a perfect fit for me, and I'm pretty excited. And the company rhymes with? On <laughs> <laughs> an orange, orange. Orange, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good luck, All good right. luck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. If it, we'll we'll keep an eye out and we'll follow up on that one. <laughs> I have some quick questions that we're asking all of our guests. It's a, a pick one or the other, and you can only pick one. So while I think I may be able to predict some of your answers here, I'm going to ask them all anyway. Uh, rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Pet or plant? Plant. Power or money? Oh, God. Money, I guess. I don't know. I don't like either of those. Go ahead. <laughs> And why money over power? I mean, because money is power, right? At least in the world of capitalism. And I, if I had more money, I could lift uh, my communities up. That's what they need. They need resources. Um, power can be influential as well. But with the money, if I was a billionaire like Robert Smith, um, I would do everything in my power with that money to ensure that my communities were living a very vibrant uh, and healthy life. So you, you'd combine the two. I appreciate that. I'll let it slide. <laughs> and and last quick, quick answer, you know, for the the gearheads out there who love outdoor gear, what is a must have piece of outdoor gear for you? I love, um, I love bringing my camera, right? Is And, and my Fuji X-T2 is my baby. And um, the one of the most beautiful things I like to do is to capture the essence of the outdoors throughout my entire trip. And editing the photos are very, is very therapeutic for me. And then sharing that with the story attached to it, to the public, uh, I think uh, encourages other people to either try it out uh, or to ask me more questions. So, So it's not only a way to experience what you're going to experience in the outdoors, but it's a way to communicate it with others and uh, and for them to be inspired. I like that. It has a long life. It's not just about serving you in the moment on the hike. It is not. My photography, anybody can tell you this, my photography is literally a gateway for people who haven't uh, done this type of uh, outdoor activities before to be inspired to want to do it. I do photography to inspire other people to participate in the outdoors. Literally, hands down, the only reason why I do it. Well, we'll be sure to put your Instagram handle in the show notes so that people can follow you and, and be inspired. Well, last question for you, Jason. Tell us one thing that someone listening to this interview right now, someone who cares about the exact same things you do, can do to make a difference. I think to truly want to make a change, to truly start doing something today is to stop holding back your agency, stop holding back your, your power, start walking in your true self and start voicing your opinion a lot louder. Get with others who can voice your opinion and also get with the naysayers uh, as well who think differently from you. Because what happens when people challenge your, th your, your, your thought is that you go back to the drawing board and you start doing more research. And I think it's very important to have those differences. 
you know, people always want to get back to is Republican versus, um, you know, Democrat. And I just hate that because it's like we are the human species. We need to work together. So if you're sitting there being quiet, if you're sitting there being not speaking up on inequities that you see, you're not speaking up for the most marginalized, then you, you don't have any power to do or shape any future of this work. Jason Swan is the land policy analyst at Western Resource Advocates in Colorado and the co-founder of the nonprofit organization Rising Roots. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This show marks the end of season three. By the time you hear this, I'll be on maternity leave, taking care of now two little girls. We'll be back with another season soon. But in the meantime, if you haven't listened to season one, I urge you to explore our back catalog. In fact, if you liked this episode, you'll love my conversation with environmental justice and green jobs advocate Michelle Romero. We'll put the link in our show notes. If you're seeking a job tackling climate change, and I hope that you are, check out our Land a Green Job 101 bootcamp, which was season two. Thanks to all of you who listen to the show and share it. I truly love bringing Degrees to you and couldn't do it without you. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Morse is our producer. Our executive producers are Rick Valu and Christina Mestre. Big thank you to Elaine Appleton-Grant, Giselle Regatau, Aurora Ferrer, Teresa Versteeg, and Rye Taylor with Podcast Allies, our production company. And I am your host, Yesh Pavlik Slink. Till next time, stay fired up, y'all. Change is coming, oh yeah. Hey.